The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we begin our time in God's Word this morning, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance and direction as we study His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege it is for us to sit here this morning, gathered together with Bibles in our laps, open to study Your Word. Father, what a privilege that is down through history in 6,000 years or so of human history. It is only in the last five or 600 years that we've had the opportunity for every believer to have a copy of your word written in the language that they speak, sitting in their lap to study, to read, to be challenged, to be reminded of your grace, your goodness to us. Father, let us not uh, take this privilege for granted, but realize what a tremendous asset it is to know what you have revealed to us. Father, we thank you for all that it tells us about who we are and about who you are and about how we can have a relationship with you because Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins so that by simple faith alone in Christ alone we can have eternal life. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, we pray that you challenge us with them, open our eyes to the greater reality of your plans for us, not only in time, but for eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Grace is one of those words that almost everyone who claims that they are a Christian uses. Unfortunately, many of them abuse it, and many people do not really understand what grace means. Grace is abused in several different ways. There are those, on the one hand, who think that somehow grace still involves works, and that that even though Christ died for us and that we are saved by grace, that still we have to do certain things in order to merit that grace. That, of course, is a distortion and misunderstanding of even the concept of grace. Grace means that it is a gift. It is free. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. It is unwarranted. But it is the goodness and the love of God that has provided everything for us, not on the basis of who we are or what we have done, but on the basis of who He is and what Christ did for us on the cross. On the other hand, we have those who do have a pretty decent understanding of what grace is in terms of the fact that Christ did it all. All our sins are paid for. Salvation is sufficient for all things, that there is nothing that we could ever do to lose it, to destroy it, to tarnish it, but that it is ours forever and ever. And unfortunately, there are those who abuse grace in the other direction. The technical word that is used for that is called antinomianism, those who are licentiousness, those who uh, live as if there are no responsibilities upon the believer now that he is a member of God's royal family. I am often reminded of a statement Chuck Swindoll made in his book, The Grace Awakening, that if people in your congregation are not uh, abusing grace, then you probably aren't teaching it. And that's because that as just as young children advance and grow up, 
and go through a stage usually in early adolescence when their parents start to give them a little freedom and they begin to abuse that freedom a little bit. So it's true that if you understand grace and are growing as a believer, that you too will probably go through a stage when you abuse that privilege of grace that God has given us. In fact, this was one of the uh, major issues that the Roman Catholic Church raised against the Protestant reformers in the 16th century as the Reformation was taking hold and people were beginning to come to a biblical understanding of the doctrines of justification by faith alone in Christ alone preached by Martin Luther, his followers, uh, John Calvin and his followers recognizing that there was a completed salvation on the cross and that simply by faith alone in Christ alone, without any observance of sacraments or church attendance or giving or the purchase of indulgences or, or any of the things that had entered into the works religion of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, as people came to understand that, the question naturally arose, well, if our sins are paid for and we have salvation and we can't lose it and we're justified freely by His grace, why should we not sin? Why should we not just live our life the way we want to? Why should we pay any more attention to Christianity and the moral dictates of the Scripture? Because it doesn't matter what we do now, we're in. And it is the overcomer passages in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation that we have been studying that provide the answer to that question that while it is true that at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you need nothing more in order to go to heaven, that no matter what else happens in life, you have everything you need to enter into heaven and to have uh, eternal life and to always be in the presence of the Lord. This is what the Scripture teaches. But yet there are incentives. As I've stated before, it's like these contracts that uh, various athletic teams give their uh, give their star athletes. You have a basic contract that will pay you X number of dollars, usually an unreasonable amount, uh, uh, every year. And if you perform at certain uh, above uh, expectation levels, then we will give you incentives and we will give you bonuses and you can make uh, all kinds of extra money. The same thing is true in, in the corporate world, that if, you, uh, if you're hired, you give a base salary, and yet if you perform at uh, certain levels, that there are rewards, there are uh, benefits, there's incentive clauses that are put into the contract so that if you do above and beyond expectations, you can, you can make even more. Well, the same thing's true in the Christian life. We have a basic salvation contract that if you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. You'll go to heaven. You'll have a resurrection body. You'll have uh, a happiness that is beyond anything that you could ever hope for, ever comprehend, ever understand. But yet there are incentive clauses. And those incentive clauses are what we refer to as crowns and rewards that the Bible talks about and that there are these uh, challenges put in front of us in Scripture that if you grow and mature as a believer, that there are certain privileges, certain responsibilities, rewards that will be given you at the judgment seat of Christ, and it will be significant, a significant time for you because as a result of your obedience to the Lord, then you will 
be able to grow and advance and glorify Him uh, in ways that uh, you never could imagine and as a result of your growth uh, in the Millennial Kingdom and on into eternity. This is a focus of our passage in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. We come to the conclusion of our sixth of seven letters to these seven churches. Here we read, if you have a King James or New King James Bible, it will read, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Actually, if you have a New American Standard, NIV, uh, most modern translations do not have the behold there. That is because that word behold was only in the few manuscripts that were used and became a vital part of what was known as the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text, a collection of about eight to ten fairly late uh, Greek manuscripts that were used by uh, Erasmus to form the basis for his uh, initial um, critical Greek New Testament, which became foundational through much of the uh, early Reformation. It was edited by several others down through that century, and it became that uh, became the foundation for the King James translation. However, we have discovered not only uh, many older manuscripts since then, we have also discovered uh, numerous uh, better manuscripts, both in terms of uh, age and quality. And it's interesting that both the majority text... Uh, critical edition, as well as the critical text, which operate on two completely opposing uh, theories of dealing with textual variants, both of them recognize that this just isn't a a good reading. So just draw a line through, behold, in your text. It's a very abrupt statement. In the previous verse, Jesus has said, I also remember that first line goes to the previous verse, He says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That is a tribulation, a reference to the pre-tribulation rapture. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world, which is then defined as those who dwell upon the earth, that will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And last week we looked at that and we saw that that is a clear reference to the tribulation period, that seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, known as the time of Jacob's trouble, known as the great tribulation, that uh, this is the upcoming event when God will uh, uh, pour out His wrath upon the earth, a time of judgment on unbelievers upon the earth, and that the church has promised that they will be kept from that hour of testing. And then we have the statement, I am coming quickly. It's an abrupt statement. It is a reminder that he is coming, but it should be translated rapidly. We studied this last time that the Greek word there is taku, and it indi- it's an adverb, and it indicates rapidity. It indicates that once this happens, it is going to happen very rapidly, and that it's not like the first advent when things took in terms of the life of Christ on the earth, some uh, 30 uh, plus years, 35 years or so he was on the earth. Some people always question that when I say it. Uh, if you think about it, Jesus was born between 4 to 6 A.D. when everybody puts too much emphasis on Luke, where Luke says he was about 30 years old. The key word there is about. 
doesn't mean he was 30 years old when he began his ministry. That may shake some of you. But from what we know about Scripture and the chronology of that time, Jesus was born between 4 to 6 B.C., probably 5 B.C. Remember, there's no year zero. And his crucifixion was more, most likely in about 33 A.D., which means 33 and 5 is 38 minus 1 is 37. So that's closer to when his age when he, uh, when he died. And um, uh, that's a long period of time. Once people realized he was here, okay, we have a few years to kind of get ready and get prepared. But see, the emphasis here is that when the Lord returns, it's going to happen suddenly, it's going to happen rap- rapidly, it's going to happen unexpectedly again and again in terms of different emphases. We have this metaphor of him coming like a thief it w- in the sense that it's, not expected, it's sudden. And that's the idea here in this word, quickly, that it will happen very rapidly. You're not going to have time to say, oops, let me straighten up a few things in my life and get ready. It's just suddenly it's going to happen. And so there is the admonition, the exhortation then to hold fast what you have that no one may take your Crown And the word there, translated hold fast, is the Greek verb kriteo. It's a present active imperative, and a present imperative emphasizes something that should be an ongoing characteristic of your life. It is a standard operating procedure. It becomes part of your character, uh, something that you no longer think about. You implement it on a consistent basis to hold fast what you have. And this word kriteo is used a number of times in the book of Revelation, and that gives us an idea of what the nuance is here. Uh, for example, it's used in Revelation 2, 24 and 25 at the end of the uh, letter to Thyatira. There, the Lord says to them, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine. He has just rebuked them because there are so many who have caved into false doctrine in Thyatira. And he says, those who do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast, kriteo, hold fast what you have until I come. Now, to understand the implication here is we have to look at that word have, which is just the standard Greek word echo to hold or to have something, to have it as your possession. And notice that this word is used in verse 24 in terms of having a doctrine and having a doctrine holding to orthodox doctrine, to biblical truth. But we have to make a distinction here to recognize that, that it is not just about having orthodox doctrine, but it also having uh, correct practice. It's about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Ortho is a word which Greek word which means to be straight. So orthodoxy is straight teaching. Orthopraxy is straight practice. Uh, An orthodontist is having get make sure your teeth are straight. So um, we are to have not only the idea of doctrine in Scripture is not just the idea of abstract theological correctness. This is this 
has entered into Western civilization because of the influence of Greek philosophy that as long as you you abstractly believe in the right things, that that's good enough. But that's not the idea in Scripture of the word doctrine. We the way we use this word doctrine today in, in, in the military in a way that is very similar to the way the Bible uses that, and that is that it involves everything from from shall we say theory of of strategy to the implementation of the tactic on the battlefield. It includes the whole realm. And unfortunately in in churches and in theology in the last twentieth century doctrine's been separated somehow from application. But the biblical concept of teaching doesn't see this this demarcation between uh, teaching and practice. They're all one and the same thing, and that's what the Lord is getting at in these uh, letters to the seven churches. So there's a connection here between having a certain doctrine holding to orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and so that's where verse 25 comes in, hold fast what you have. What is it that they have in the context? They have correct doctrine. They have correct they have truth, biblical truth. They have not compromised it with the pressure coming from the culture around them. Uh, Revelation 2, 13 and 14 reinforces this same idea. Uh, this is back in the uh, letter to uh, Pergamum. And he says there, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you what? You hold fast. My name, that has to do with holding to a true doctrine of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and did not deny my faith. Notice the contrast between, on the one hand, holding fast my name, in contrast to denying my faith. That is, faith is in the sense of the body of truth and doctrine, teaching, application that is part of Christianity, even in the midst of persecution, verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who, what? hold the teaching, the doctrine of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And then in verse 15 it says, So so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So in the context of Revelation chapter 3, uh, and 2 and 3, this word krate, even though it's used a couple of times, indicates just the power of holding. That's the root concept of uh, krateo is the idea of power, the idea of strength. And even though it's used, for example, in Revelation uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, of uh, Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, it is used in numerous contexts to indicate uh, holding on to your right doctrine and holding fast to your spiritual life and spiritual growth and not being distracted, not allowing uh, circumstances, situations, people, or events, or persecution or whatever it might be to, to push you off center and distract you from the priority of learning the truth and applying the truth consistently in your life. So this is the idea that we see at the beginning. Behold, I am, uh, excuse me, just I am coming quickly. I'm coming in a rapid manner. Hold fast. It's almost a conclusion, but it's an exhortation, a warning. Hold fast. What you have, what you have there is not simply just abstract doctrine. It is the 
application of that doctrine in life. What, and it's the idea that whatever you've done as you've grown and as you've matured, don't let anything move you away from that. Hold fast what you have, and then there is a purpose clause that no one may take your crown. Now, the Scriptures talk about different kinds of rewards and different kinds of future privileges and blessings. And these seven letters to seven churches each have a passage. It talks about a promise to those who overcome. And as we'll see here, that comes up in verse 12. And there are special privileges that are outlined in each of these different letters related to believers who are overcomers, that is, victorious believers. Now, there are three crowns that are specifically mentioned in Scripture. These are special awards that are given to believers who persevere or endure in key contexts. That's another synonym. The word endurance is another synonym for kriteo. Uh, it is the idea of enduring, staying with things under pressure, not being uh, distracted by either your own sin nature or by the pressures of the world around you. The first of these crowns is called the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. This is uh, specifically described and attributed to the believer who advances to spiritual maturity. So every believer has an opportunity to receive a crown of righteousness according to Second Timothy 4, 7 and 8 and Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13. We've gone through these in some detail, so I just want to summarize them this uh, morning. Secondly, the crown of life. Crown of life seems to be a uh, special capacity above and beyond that of others in the in the uh, future kingdom. Uh, to, it goes to those who persevere to spiritual maturity, persevere in trial. James one twelve, and it's also mentioned in Revelation two ten. Revelation two ten, we read, "Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested." And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So the crown of life seems to be specifically related to those who are martyred or are under the threat of martyrdom, losing their life uh, for their faith. And then third, we have the crown of glory, which seems to go to pastors, missionaries, who are faithful in the communication of the Word of God. First Peter chapter 5 verses 2 through 4. These are pastors who are consistent in their life of studying, teaching the Word of God, communicating that to their congregations. That is the role of the pastor. It's interesting to watch and to observe historical trends on the church down through the ages of how the pastoral ministry has changed as a result of the change of the culture around them. And in our generation, in the last, and I would say beyond simply our generation, but over the last hundred years since the uh, culmination of the uh, Industrial Revolution, Revolution and the development of corporate America beginning in the late 19th century, the church has taken on uh, more and more of a reflection of uh, running a local church like a local business or corporation 
is, is run. And as a result of that now, by the end of the 19th century, in many churches and in many seminaries, the pastor is basically viewed as the CEO. He's the chief executive officer. He is the manager. He is, uh, it emphasizes his role as a people person taking care of all the, overseeing all the things that go on in the life of the church. And oh yes, on occasion, he teaches the Bible, but because he's so busy managing and administering all the different things that go on in the local church that he doesn't have a lot of time to study and teach. And I will tell you, as a, having spent uh, 25 years pastoring smaller congregations where you don't have a staff, you don't have a sec, full-time secretary, you don't have office staff, that Someday, I hope, that I have a congregation large enough to where I can really study and teach. Gee, who knows what I'll discover. And, uh, but it's, it's difficult. You, don't, you answer your own phone all the time. I'm always amazed, and I don't mind it. And I'm frequently complimented, and I take it as a compliment when people uh, call me or leave a message, and I'll call them back, and they say, I can't believe you call me back so quickly. You actually talk to people. And I've had people call. Somehow they get my number, and they will call looking for uh, the church or looking to wanting to talk to somebody to order order tapes or DVDs or something. And I'll answer the phone and uh, just at home, so I don't say anything like West Houston Bible Church or Dean Bible Ministries or anything. And people will say, "Well, I was trying to reach Dean Bible Ministries or West Houston Bible Church." I'll say, "Well, that's me. I'm Pastor Dean." Really? Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just, just, well, I just need to talk to somebody to help me out. Said, no, that's not a problem. You don't need to be all upset. Who are you? Tell me about things. Let me get to know you a little bit. Uh, but you do. There are distractions, and there are a lot more distractions. And this is true, and I, I communicate this to uh, uh, guys who are coming out of seminary and going to pastor a church, that it is unavoidable as a pastor of a smaller congregation that you have to do a certain amount of administration and phone answering and all this other stuff that comes comes to play and and if you're fortunate and and God blesses you then maybe after 15 or 20 years in the ministry you'll have had the time to have trained people to do all these things the way you would do them so that you can spend some time studying and teaching but there's a big difference between a pastor who understands that's his primary role and still has to do the uh, everyday grunge work that is a distraction and the pastor who really doesn't understand that he, the reason God put him in that local congregation is to do what? To feed the sheep. That's what Jesus told uh, the Apostle Peter in John chapter 21. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Well, then Peter, feed the sheep. And so then he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter's getting a little frustrated. Lord, you, you know I love you. He says, then, then Peter, feed the lambs. And each time he tells them this, they go through this three times. Each time you have this statement, Jesus uses a different word for feeding or a different word for lambs or a different word for love. It's a great study on the use of synonyms in Scripture in order to bring out different emphases. But the bottom line as you go through that interchange is that the responsibility of the shepherd is to feed the sheep. Shepherds do a lot of things to sheep. 
and taking care of them. And so that uh, in terms of understanding a metaphor, you have to realize what applies and what doesn't apply. And what applies is that the shepherd is the one who leads the sheep to where there is food and nourishment. He also keeps the wolves away and protects them. Paul uses that analogy in Acts chapter I think it's about Acts chapter 21 where he talks to the Ephesian elders when he meets them in Miletus and he talks about the fact that there will be uh, ravenous wolves that will come in amongst you and seek to destroy the sheep and your job is to protect the sheep. So you're to feed the sheep, you protect the sheep. How do you do that? By teaching the truth of God's Word. And it takes a lot of time and energy and mental effort and sweat to study and to think things through and to uh, go through the text of Scripture. And you can't just do this in uh, two or three hours a day and then spend the rest of your time with five or six different groups. It also means for every hour you're teaching, you have to spend, I believe, at least uh, eight or ten hours a week studying. Now, you just do the math on that sometime and figure out how much time a pastor has in his week. You usually don't have much more than about... Uh, 40 or 50 hours of really good study time. Lord knows I wish I had that most weeks. And that means that you really can't teach more than three or four hours a week and really do an adequate job of study and preparation. Now, as the older you get, and uh, as uh, my friend Jim Meyer says, the deeper your well gets, the more you can teach because you learn more. But uh, when you come out of seminary, you're only prepared to pastor and to teach to a certain degree in that you have been given the tools. Seminary doesn't, doesn't load you up with all kinds, of, uh, all kinds of content necessarily because you're taking lots of courses, and most of your courses are either survey courses. And one thing I always enjoyed about Dallas Seminary was Dallas had a curriculum that took you through every book of the Bible. And so you would go through every book of the Bible, but obviously in four years, you're not going through every book of the Bible in depth. You might spend uh, four hours on some of the larger books, and you might spend 20 minutes on some of the smaller books, but you go through all of them. In Hebrews course, Hebrew courses and in Greek courses, you'll spend semesters on particular books. You might spend a semester in Romans. Romans has uh, 16 chapters. I believe, and you will go through those 16 chapters in about 14 weeks. So obviously you're covering a lot of territory. You're hitting the high points, but it gives a graduate the tools to go out and do more with it. Unfortunately, most seminary graduates go and they just teach what they got in school, thinking that's enough. They don't realize this concept. that the, The root word of seminary is seminal, seed. You just planted a seed. Now it's your job as a pastor to go out and teach more. Sometimes people come to me and they say, you know, you'd be a great seminary professor the way you you just get in depth in there. Have you ever thought about that? I said, I wouldn't want to teach in seminary. I don't like teaching Romans in 14 weeks. I like teaching Romans in 140 hours where you can really get into what Paul is saying. I like teaching Genesis in 200 hours, not in 20 hours, or not as I do in my... Old Testament survey course in six hours. It's frustrating. You can't really get into what is there. There is so much that is in the Word. But that's the role of a pastor. And there is a special crown of glory 
for pastors and missionaries who understand that their job is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, Ephesians 4, uh, 10, and 11, and to feed the sheep. It's not their job to do hospital visitation, to uh, go around and uh, play dominoes with the old folks in church or do any of these other things that pastors think is ministry. So we are to be involved in faithfully teaching the Word. Now, Romans 3.11 says to hold fast that no one can take your crown. The implication is that you can lose crowns and rewards once you have gained them. That it, There's that potential that having grown to spiritual maturity and having qualified for certain rewards that you may become disqualified. Now, we've all studied in the past the fact that when you walk by means of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit is working in and through you, we produce the fruit of the Spirit, production of the Spirit, and we produce that which we call divine good to distinguish it from human good. Anybody can do a lot of good works in the power of the flesh. Uh, People can build great churches, tremendous evangelistic ministries. They can have uh, great publishing empires and missionary uh, enterprises and endeavors all in the flesh. And it doesn't count at all for eternity because, as a pastor friend of mine told me when I was uh, just ordained, he said, remember, uh, people can go out there and build huge corporations and raise enormous amounts of money and do all kinds of things for God, and it's all in the power of the flesh. Just look at what many uh, cults and world religions have done. All in the power of the flesh, some of them are quite moral. Some of them are, are quite, quote, religious in their orientation, but they're not biblical and has nothing to do with God. The Holy Spirit has no eternal value whatsoever and doesn't matter at all, doesn't impress God one little bit. So we have to distinguish between divine good and human good. Now, anything that we do in life as we grow and mature that's done in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, ha- will always last. It will be that some of that gold, silver, and precious stones that survives at the judgment seat of Christ. But we are rewarded on the basis of the gold, silver, and precious stones. But as we've been studying in Hebrews, there are serious warnings to believers that that if you advance to a certain stage and then regress, that it there are indeed consequences to that regression. And the passages such as the one we're reading here in uh, Revelation 3.11 plus 2 John 1.8 says, Look to yourselves that do, we do not lose the things that we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. In other words, the implication is there that we will not, if we fail, if you advance to a certain level of spiritual growth and maturity and then you uh, backslide, that even though the amount of divine good that you have produced remains the same, because in spiritual regression you lose capacity for serving God, you lose capacity for righteousness, you lose capacity for wisdom, then you will also forfeit whatever rewards you might have gained, whatever privileges and responsibilities you might have been given for the eternal kingdom because of your uh, subsequent failures. This is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9. Starting 9.24, he, he compares the Christian life to running a race and the competition in running a race. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. 
emphasizing that diligence and the fact that the goal is not just to, as I've heard some people say, just to be in heaven. I don't care where I live in heaven, what kind of mansion I have in heaven, as long as I'm there. That's a low expectation model of the Christian life. We're to run to be winners, not just to be competitors. 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it, that is, in the human realm, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And the word for wreath there is the same word we have here in Revelation 3.11. It's stephanos for a crown. That in the uh, uh, physical realm, people often run races, compete for various prizes that are perishable, but our goal is an imperishable crown. And that is what uh, John or the Lord is talking about in Revelation 3.11. 1 Corinthians 9.26, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others... Paul is saying, no matter what all I've done, there's still that potential that I should become disqualified, meaning that I would lose crowns, lose rewards. I, even the Apostle Paul says that. In spite of all that I've done, there is still this potential that I may go negative to gospel, negative to God's grace, go into spiritual rebellion, and uh, suffer the consequences in terms of rewards and future responsibilities. So there's a dire warning in 3.11 do, uh, to hold fast the things that we have that no one may take our crown. Now, it's not that someone can steal your crown. This is an idiom indicating that there, there are circumstances, there are people, there are situations in life that can distract us from the goal. And so he is just speaking idiomatically here not to let anything interfere in our pursuit of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. The principle here is that we need to consistently live today in light of eternity. That's our motivation. It's not a motivation that we'll lose our salvation because we have a secure salvation, that's grace. But also in grace, God provides the incentive clauses to keep looking forward to growth because life doesn't end when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. Then we get rewarded and awarded for what we've done here, and that impacts what happens in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. This is where verse 12 comes in. We read, He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now, what exactly is going on here? This this buys into a, uh, certain idioms from the ancient world that are uh, similar to, some statements we have today, but we need to make sure we understand what the Lord is saying here. The word there for overcomer is the Greek verb nikao. Nikao is where the is based on the noun Nike for the goddess of victory, the Greek goddess of victory Nike, and you mispronounce it Nike when you get your athletic shoes. 
And it means that which is victorious. The verb means to be victorious, to prevail, to win in the face of obstacles, to conquer, to overcome. There's debate over this word because of a passage that the Apostle John uses in 1 John chapter 5 where some think that an overcomer equals a believer. So that all believers are overcomers because we've all put our faith alone in Christ alone. I believe that's a mistranslation of the John passage in 1 John 5. I've dealt with that in the 1 John series and in earlier overcomer passages in Revelation, so I'm not going to do it here. The word means to be a victorious believer to be a believer who at the judgment seat of Christ has rewardable gold, silver, and precious stones as opposed to having all of his work burned up as wood, hay, and straw. There's clearly a distinction in in the Bible between two types of believers, those who are carnal and fleshly and who never advance spiritually and therefore have no uh, future ruling or reigning responsibilities with the Lord, and those who do, those who are victorious in the Christian life, those who grow and mature and have a rewardable life. That's what this is referring to. It's the incentive clause. And one of the incentives is listed here is, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, what in the world does that mean? So that temple, the Greek word is stulos, and it's used figuratively in the Scripture of any firm support. It's used of persons who are who have authority in influence in the church. We use that idiom the same way today. We probably got it from the Scripture, where we talk about somebody's a pillar in the community. They are a real pillar in support at, at, at work. But that's the idea that this is someone who has stability, someone who has strength, and someone who has a contributing uh, force in the community or church or in some organization. When we go to study Scripture and to interpret Scripture, and we look at idioms and phrases like this, the place where we go first of all in Scripture is to see how these phrases are used in other places of the Scripture. The Scripture is really our frame of reference for understanding uh, biblical phraseology, biblical metaphor, biblical idiom. Second place we go is into the culture at large, and this was a an idiom that was popular in both Latin and Greek culture. And uh, there have been different guesses, different uh, speculations about uh, what this means. Some have argued that it's like uh, a couple of the freestanding uh, pillars in the temple, uh, that would indicate that uh, there was some so- in the Old Testament that it was like that. There have been other speculations that this was had something to do with record keeping. I've been in not you know not an overwhelming number of temples uh, in in Greece and in the, and in Israel. I've never seen inscriptions on. Uh, on temples, I'm not saying there aren't. There may be a few here or there, but that's pretty much been discredited by by most scholars. The idea here is to go with the biblical uh, frame of reference that refers to people like Paul and Peter and others as pillars in the church. They are those who are of, of influence, those who are of authority, those who have special responsibilities, and that fits the whole context of what is going on in Revelation. Uh, before I finish this, I want to go to the next key word there, and that's temple. The word temple is the Greek word naos. 
There's two words used in, in Greek for a temple. There's the word naos and the word heros. Heros usually refers to the entire temple complex. Naos refers to the specific inner uh, holy, holy of holies, the inner sanctum, the dwelling place of God. Now remember, we've seen this many times, that our destiny, according to Revelation chapter 21, a number of other passages in Revelation, is to be priests and rulers in the millennial kingdom. Our destiny is to be priests. What, where do priests function? Just think it through. It's very logical. Where do priests operate? In the temple. And that's all this is saying, is that in the temple of God, in the millennial kingdom, there are those believers who are overcomers in this age who are going to have a special privilege and place and responsibility in terms of serving the Lord and functioning within that area throughout the millennial kingdom and eternity. So it is another idiom about of the fact that those who overcome are going to have special roles and responsibilities of leadership in the kingdom and this puts it within that area of worship for God in the temple of the millennial kingdom and then the next phrase says and he shall go out no more what does that mean that means that this is not something he's going to be able to lose it's just the flip side of uh, the fact that uh, you can not hold fast in the previous verse and you can fail you can lose and you can regress but that won't happen uh, in the millennial kingdom, once we are, have our resurrection bodies, we are have we're locked into positive volition, and there won't be the the option of failure anymore. So we will have a permanent position of service in the temple. Those who are overcomers, and then in addition to this, the Lord says, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So we're told here that the victorious believer has inscribed upon him three different things. First of all, the name of my God. Secondly, the name of the city of my God. And third, my new name. Now, what does this mean? It's, it's interesting to see how these things all fit together with what we have seen. The overcomer is going to do what? He is going to be a, a foundational leader, responsible ruler, with roles of responsibility in the temple, right? So the first phrase is that he gets the special name of God inscribed upon him. This is a metaphor in Scripture for both divine ownership and the dedication of the one who is who is so inscribed to God. This is very likely an allusion to Exodus chapter 28, verses 36 through 38. It's at that point that we have the dress of the high priest described. There we read in uh, Exodus 28:36, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave upon it like the engraving of a signet, Holiness to the Lord. Kadash le Yahweh. This was put on the headdress of the high priest, indicating that he was dedicated to God. 
This is the imagery that we have here that on the overcomer is inscribed the name of God. This indicates that he is specifically dedicated to the service of God. It fits the whole priestly imagery that we have of the church age believer service in the millennial kingdom. Exodus 38:37 goes on to read, You shall put on it a blue cord, that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in their holy cities. And it shall always be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. So it, was a, it signified the ownership the dedica- of God, to, of the priest, and his dedication to God. Ezekiel. 4835 talks about the uh, New Jerusalem and its description says all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits in the name of the city from that day shall be what? The Lord is there, Yahweh Shema. This relates to the second part of our, of our verse. In Revelation 3.12 we read, I will put on him, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God which is the Lord is there. This is where the Lord will dwell upon the earth. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ will dwell on the earth in, uh, in the earthly Jerusalem. And then we're told that there is this other city, this new city called the New Jerusalem. And there's, I'm not going to go into a detailed study of the New Jerusalem, but I want to show you a little bit about what the Scriptures teach about this. New Jerusalem is only mentioned here in Revelation Three and again in Revelation chapter 21, the word new is kainos, meaning it's a qualitatively new place, not new in time or recent. It indicates a new Jerusalem. It's not the earthly Jerusalem. We need to distinguish between the millennial Jerusalem, which is earthly, and this new Jerusalem that is heavenly. Now, there's a lot of debate among premillennial dispensational scholars as to how to put some of these passages together because there's not a lot said. And so I haven't had time to work through all of the details, and, and some of the passages are clearly uh, unclear. Uh, and it's like some of the, sometimes I think as I've been studying this, that some of these passages are like uh, Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They didn't really distinguish between, uh, within the passage between first coming and second coming. Both are present. And half the verse deals with uh, first coming, half the verse deals with second coming. Because the Old Testament prophets didn't see the gap between the first and second coming. In the same way, we have these passages that talk about the New Jerusalem. And there are those that believe that the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven based on the participles used in the verse. It is coming down from heaven and sort of uh, rides around the... um, uh, earth like a satellite during the millennial kingdom and then comes down to the earth uh, in the new earth and others who believe that it doesn't come at all until it comes down to the new earth and we'll uh, I'll get all that studied out by the time we get to Revelation 21 I'm sure Isaiah mentions this we have some indications of a new Jerusalem in the Old Testament it's related to the new heavens and new earth Isaiah 65 um, 17, a few other passages indicate this, but let's just go through a couple of points on the New Jerusalem. First of all, New Jerusalem only appears three times 
in Revelation, Revelation 3.12, Revelation 21.2, and it's mentioned in Revelation 21, verse 10. Second point is already stated. It's distinct from the millennial Jerusalem, which is the earthly city of Jerusalem. Third, the new, the new Jerusalem was implied, if not specifically uh, discussed, by Old Testament prophets. For example, Isaiah 65:16, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 66:20, Then they shall bring, bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations on horses and in chariots and in litters on mules on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of of the Lord, and then verse 21 says, "And I also will take some of them for priests and Levites, for as the new heavens and new earth see, uh, you don't realize this as you're reading in verse 20 until you get down to verse 22, that it's talking about in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, show you, shall your descendants and your name remain." So what we see here is that during the period of the new heavens and new earth, not a lot is said, but there is the new Jerusalem, and there is the function of a priesthood. What's interesting is when you get in Revelation 21, there's no temple in the new Jerusalem, because the, but the Lord dwells there, and his presence provides light. There's no sun. There's no moon. It's going to be a, a very different uh, universe. We also see a description that the New Jerusalem descends from heaven and is a heavenly city. So it, this has always been something that has intrigued believers and students of prophecy is just how all of this works. And unfortunately, we only have these few passages to go by, and so we don't have a lot of, of information. The description of the New Jerusalem is in Revelation 21:10 through 22:5, and we look at that. It is. It seems to be in the shape of a cube. It's actually 1,500 miles uh, square and 1,500 miles high, and so this is like from Houston to Los Angeles, and and then north and that far up. So it is the abode of the church. We have several things that are indicated. Uh, for example, uh, Revelation 21, we read, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. We go through Revelation 21. The first thing we note is that John indicates that it is like a jewel, jeweled lamp which illuminates the city. This picture gives us one artist's conception of that. Its walls and its gates are described as covered with jewels. The twelve gates bear the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. The wall between each gate and the next forms a single foundation or block which bears the name of one of the twelve apostles of Christ. So there's this mention of the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles of Christ. The measurements for the city are given. It's 1,500 miles each way in breadth and length but also in height and its wall is 216 feet thick. 
when we work all these things out in terms of biblical measurements, uh, the numbers are, are interesting because of the way that these numbers are used in Scripture. It's 12,000 stadia broad, and its walls are 144 cubits thick. These are numbers that frequently appear in Scripture. In verses 18 to 21, chapter 21, John describes the materials of the New Jerusalem. The wall is of jasper, its foundation uh, layers are encrusted with other precious stones, its gates are pearls, and the streets and buildings are made with a sort of transparent gold. This is where we get the idea of the streets of gold in heaven. Actually, it's the New Jerusalem. The city does not have a temple. It doesn't have a sun or a moon. There's no night. There's no closing of the gates, and there's no evil. The curse no longer exists, we're told specifically. But it does have the river of the water of life. At the center is the tree of life, and at the center is the throne and presence of God himself. So these are just some different artist conceptions I thought you would find somewhat interesting as we wrestle with the biblical description and how to depict it. This is what we see in Scripture now. In summary, what we have is, first of all, the theme that Jesus is coming, and then he's going to be crowned king. This is reflected in a number of hymns. Crown him with many crowns. There's a reference to the crowning of Jesus in in, uh, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which we sang earlier at the end of the communion service. There's uh, songs like uh, uh, the the, um, All Hail the Power. These are hymns that speak of the coming of Jesus when he is crowned as king. Uh, Matthew 25:31 states, "When the Son of Man comes in His glory, building on the imagery in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. He's not sitting on the throne of His glory uh, now while He is in heaven. He is on the Father's throne. At the end of the tribulation, the Antichrist will be destroyed and replaced by Jesus, who is the perfect King." Revelation 14.1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his Father's name written on their foreheads. This is when Jesus returns and establishes his reign on the earth. At that time, he establishes his dwelling place on the earth in the millennial temple of Jerusalem, which is raised up on a mountain. This is the earthly Jerusalem. Zechariah 8.3 says, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Zechariah 8.13, And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, the millennial Jerusalem, becomes the center for worldwide spirituality in the millennial kingdom. Zechariah 13, 1 and 2, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. They shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. Ezekiel 43, 12, This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. 
Zechariah 14.20, In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. See, this is the same idea we saw of holiness to the Lord engraved on the priest's turban. This is the idea of God's name being inscribed upon the overcomer uh, believer. Uh, Point number five, the worship is centered on the Messiah and on the millennial uh, temple. Passages such as uh, Zechariah 14.9, The Lord shall be king over all the earth. Zechariah 14.16, Everyone shall go up to Jerusalem every year to worship the king. That's all the Gentiles, everyone on the earth. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, Now will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his path. So all of this lies behind that imagery that uh, Jesus uses when he says, I will make the overcomer a pillar in the temple of my God, indicating that we will be have a specific role of responsibility in the temple, in the millennial kingdom. That's why I went through the passages emphasizing the millennial temple in the earthly Jerusalem. Then he says, I will uh, write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is an entry pass into the new Jerusalem for the overcomer believer, that this new Jerusalem is that which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And the indi- giving him a new name in Scripture was the indication of a new position, a new role, a new responsibility. And the Lord Jesus Christ gets that new name when he returns at the end of the millennial kingdom because he has a new role to as the Davidic king ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and establishing his kingdom there. And then we have our... Uh, Final statement in verse 13, which is directed to everyone who reads this. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is, if you're positive, pay attention to what you've just heard. This is a significant warning, and this is a significant incentive to stay with it and not to give up in the Christian life. Let him hear what the Spirit says to who? To the Church of Philadelphia? No, it's not just directed to that one congregation, but... Let, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to all the churches. The message ultimately applies to one and all. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be challenged by your word, to be challenged by uh, the future, that grace not only has provided a sufficient salvation, but an incentive to live for you for the future. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ paid it all. All we have to do is accept it as a free gift. Now, Father, we pray that we might not forget the things we've studied this morning, but that you would challenge us with them and that we would be mindful of our future destiny as believers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.